This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is John Etherton. John is president of Etherton and Associates and... Um, and he's a keen uh, observer of all things procurement policy at DOD and on the Hill. Um, John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. It's great to be here. Well, again, it's one of our regular um, sessions where we get together and talk about what's going on. And I guess the first place I'd like to just start is, you know, with what's been going on on the Hill. Where are we with, you know, the uh, NDAAs and what's Congress looking at and where do we go from here? So, John, take sure. it away. Take it away. Okay. Well, sure. Uh, first of all, let me sort of just give you a, a sort of a today where we are. The president signed the continuing resolution to keep the government funded through December 11. In that uh, continuing resolution is one of the anomalies or general provisions was an extension of the Section 3610 authorities from the CARES Act uh, through December 11th, although there were no additional funds provided for it, but at least uh, the authority now will exist. And there were a couple of other things that folks had sought that frankly didn't make the cut, but at least for now that that authority will continue. Um, I think the other thing that we're looking at is uh, on the broader front, do we have a COVID supplemental bill? And right now it looks like there's a little bit of momentum behind it. And this morning's uh, uh, unemployment numbers were still pretty high for the new filings for unemployment. So that may pick up some steam. And if that does, there'll be other issues, I think, in there on the acquisition policy front dealing with COVID that we may be looking at. But right now, that still hasn't really taken off as a process. Um, The big bill that everybody looks at every year where the acquisition policy issues are prosecuted, of course, is the DOD authorization bill. And that has now passed both House and Senate. The bills are huge coming out of the uh, House and Senate, especially the Senate bill. They, it looks like they put everything in there, but the kitchen sink uh, in terms of the four amendments, I think the bill tops out at about 3,600, 3,800 pages of language. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's a lot of things in there. They put in the Intelligence Authorization Act whole, uh, and there were a couple of other major pieces of legislation that got folded in. And the reason is this bill eventually will become law. And so if you don't have any other way to get a bill, freestanding bill through and you can attach it, that really ups your chances of getting the legislation in. Um, And the uh, acquisition policy sections in the bill are actually quite robust. They center in Title VIII, which is the normal place where you see them, but there are also very significant provisions in Title XVI. They added some things on the floor. And then of course, there's a, a fairly robust security clearance reform uh, section out of the Intelligence Authorization Act that also got added to the bill. So the staffs have started conference informally. Um, The members have not met yet. The conferees have not been appointed, uh, but the staff has been told, go clear out the underbrush. Um, And they've got a lot of issues uh, they're working through right now. What I've heard as of this week is that that process is moving, but it's not going all terribly quickly. Um, I think what people can expect is that in October, 
uh, the staff directors will eventually tell the staff, all right, you guys have until X day and whatever isn't resolved comes to us and then we're gonna go and try to push it to a final conclusion because I think what they wanna do is be in a position to come back after the election, identify the 20, 30, however many big issues that are still out there and then uh, and then finish it up. And hopefully we'll see the bill pass before the end of the calendar year. I think we will, pretty wow. confident about that. The one issue that I think is gonna be, we'll have to wait for the election. Uh, Senator Inhofe is chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee has stated that he's going to oppose this, any provisions dealing with the renaming of the bases to change the name from the Confederate generals or whatever. And, and that, that language is in both bills. So procedurally walking away from it in that way is very difficult. It would really t take the acquiescence of all the members. And I, I just don't know how you do that. But anyway, that all gets pushed off into after the election and they'll figure it out. So in the bill, uh, you know, the normal kinds of issues that we normally see are addressed. I mean, what Congress does is they make laws. So every year they have to generate new language. Uh, but I would say the big themes in this year's bill are cybersecurity, not surprisingly, domestic sort of supply chain integrity, uh, especially in light of what we found out in the whole PPE problems in the spring with COVID. You know, I think that's a big one. And then just the, the whole idea of sort of the defense industrial base and that sort of thing. And there's some specific anti-China provisions in the bill as well. Um, and and they, these are bipartisan issues. I think whatever, you know, whatever, whatever we see in the election, I think these are going to continue to be really big issues. And so, but the details are pretty tricky. Um, for example, there's a uh, provision in there. It's in both bills, basically dealing with printed circuit boards, ostensibly to limit imports from China and other places. But frankly, if you read the language carefully, it also uh, would eventually uh, prohibit imports from Taiwan, South Korea, and other places that we consider to be friendly countries or allied countries. And the rationale for this is that, the, uh, that there would be some concern about foreign adversaries being able to penetrate or insert things in the manufacturing process overseas. And so therefore we need to do it domestically. Uh, you know, that's a tough one. I, I think the language is fairly limiting in terms of what's already there in both bills. The staffs have told us in industry that the language is member driven. Uh, there's a lot of member interest. So that one is probably one of the thornier issues. There are also a couple of other interesting things though in the bill that I think are worth noting. Last year, people may recall there was a real desire to come up with a more focused acquisition process for software development and acquisition to speed it up and to align yeah. more with industry and their practice. Um, that it continues in this bill, although there isn't any major changes to what we had done last year, uh, but the, the committee continues to focus their interest on that uh, this year. Uh, so I think that's one that's important. There's an interesting one on intellectual property uh, dealing with the modular open systems architecture uh, issue, which is, it's a provision in the Senate bill, which is quite prescriptive, but it really it gets to this idea of open source interface data and what should be the standard used across the Department of Defense and what should the contractors be delivering as part of their work to support that. And so that's going to, I think, frankly, personally, in looking at the provision, it's quite prescriptive it really drives you, to, you know, in certain very specific areas, which 
I'm not sure you need to do as a matter of law, but that issue now is you know persisting again with the theme of the department trying to own the technology baseline uh, idea um, and not simply hand everything over to a contractor and let the contractor be responsible uh, for you know managing a system to the extent we've seen historically. So I think that's another one that you know there's some discussion around. Um, uh, not terribly controversial. It's really more the issue of how you do it, not so much the concept. A couple other ones I'll just mention. Um, a couple years ago, we had the bid protest pilot program that was essentially, uh, in, in the end, after yeah. the study, uh, the RAND study that came out after the legislation was enacted that looked into this. Basically, the, this pilot program would study exactly the wrong things, according to the RAND study. Um, and it would start going into effect in December, and there is language in the bill in the uh, that will repeal that that's under consideration, which would seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, so that's another area that. Uh, How about commercial items, John? Yeah, there's language on the commercial item side that uh, uh, is also again this is a continuing uh, area of interest for the committees, and basically the problem that we have with commercial items, and you and I have talked about this, Roger is on the one hand, everybody loves the idea of commercial item acquisition. Conceptually, it's great. The commercial marketplace pays for development. The government gets the benefit of it without having to pay for it. Um, it it's usually products that are well-proven. People know how to use them. But on the other hand, <laughs> you know, what is a commercial item? And how do you guarantee the security, uh, especially on the IT side for these things? So some of that sort of stru that struggle and tension is reflected into in the uh, in the language that we're seeing. Uh, there's language here dealing with you know how do you do a determination uh, for uh, commercial items, which has been a perennial issue. Uh, on the on the other hand, there's uh, so they they want to get more documentation to say this really 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 is a commercial item, and on the other hand, they're saying to the Department of Defense, go out and buy, buy, buy more commercial items, right? So it's, it's sort of take it with one hand and, and give it away with the other. Um, another issue that I think in the whole realm of commercial items uh, acquisition that, that is interesting is the issue of aligning commercial sort of product processes with that industry uses up for their commercial work with what DOD then will evaluate and assess for their government work. And so there's language now in the uh, the bill which would deal with this for uh, business systems and what constitutes a deficiency. Uh, so the DOD would no longer have a separate definition for audit purposes than what the commercial is used in the commercial world. And DOD is really very troubled by this because they're used to the current process, right? And their, right. their argument is that, hey, everybody knows how to do the DOD process. And now if we have to change it over to these standards, there's a little bit of potential subjective uh, thinking that may go into the, the evaluation of this. Uh, are we not now opening a can of worms? We're going to have to retrain people in the government side and, and raise some of these issues. How do we do that? Uh, and and, and they're, they're pushing back a little bit. So it's kind of interesting that, as, as again, we try to align these things. It's, it's sort of like, don't rock the boat. We're used to this. Let's sort of let the sleeping dog lie, and you may be opening up a can of worms because things in the government context will be read differently than an audit counterpart maybe on the commercial side. I mean, I think it's all part of this 
issue of barriers versus how mm-hmm. open do you want to make the system? Uh, and I think this is just going to become more and more acute as we go down the road and deal with cyber and some of these other issues. Right, which is where I want to pick up when we come back, John, is talking about that. So commercial item and sort of how the government's security issues around cyber and supply sure. chain are, how, how it runs up against the commercial market and how is that all going to play out. My sure. guest today is John Etherton. He is the president of Etherton and Associates. I'm Roger Waldron. And you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jonathan Etherton. He is the president of Etherton and Associates. And we're talking about uh, procurement policy issues, um, the NDAA, you know, just what what John is seeing across the federal market. And um, John, when we took the break where you were talking about some of the issues or opportunities, challenges, I don't know what you want to call them, with regard to commercial item contracting and, you know, the goal to get commercial item contracting, but they, at the same time, taking, you know, making it determinations more difficult to do. And I think it would be good to talk about just that tension between, you know, the commercial market and trying to access more of the commercial market with some of these uh, current trends, which I will just, con- are, which are bipartisan in many ways, of increasing um, security concerns around the commercial market uh, when those products are used by the federal government. So. Right. Well, and, I, and as you point out, I think this is a bipartisan set of concerns that is is reflected in the some of the things we've seen coming out of the administration, some of the executive orders, um, but. One message we've definitely gotten from the staffs on the, both committees is that you know this whole concern about domestic production uh, in the light uh, in the midst of the commercial item thing uh, is something that they is is bipartisan by camera. So I think whatever happens in the election, we're going to get some flavor of this as a continuing conversation in the next, especially given what happened again with the COVID situation and the cyber concerns about cyber. Um, you we're seeing you know this. I think all coming together is a big issue. Yeah, in this week, for example, we saw the uh, unveiling of the interim rule on uh, CMMC, the uh, yep. cyber um, maturity model, and then the implementation of the new the NIST standard, which is related, but it's a separate issue. There are a number of issues with that. I mean, if, if you're dealing with, and, and what's notable about that interim rule is the only commercial companies that are completely exempt from any of it are the ones that are selling strictly commercially available off the shelf to a very narrow range of products uh, to the federal government. And everyone else, they have a number of different things that are gradually going to work their way into solicitations and requirements and involve on the one side on the NIST uh, uh, assessments will be government people assessing whether you're compliant. And on the other side, identification of third-party certifiers Mm -hmm which have yet to happen on CMMC that it will uh, be responsible for that. And, uh, and that's now I personally think on the cyber side, I think the dichotomy that we have right now between what the government is going to require and what the commercial sector requires is gradually going to, I think those two are going to come together. And I think one of the big drivers will be the insurance industry. I mean, I think as they see, breaches and and liabilities and other kinds of things occurring and they're on the hook to pay through some of their insurance products i think they're going to demand ever increasing 
requirements on securing unclassified you know data which is currently an issue and anything that's sensitive uh, within a company's networks I think that there's going to be a lot of drive on that side even coming from the commercial side you think it's accelerated by I mean for lack of a better COVID-19 and the fact both in terms of identifying additional risks but just the reliance on uh, technology for everyday you know, business at this point. I mean, even you and I are, you know, conducting this interview vir virtually, right? Not in the yeah. studio. Um, right. Do you see that as a driving pressure as more and more, not that you could over exaggerate the reliance on technology, but it just seems to continue to accelerate. And people right. No, I think that definitely it's made it a more visible issue for everybody, right? Because we're all doing this and we want to stay in touch with one another. Um, and so, yes, I, I think that's definitely accelerated. I think that there, there's sort of though a, a melding of a lot of these different issues together. Um, the printed circuit board case I mentioned earlier is one where, yes, there's a drive to shield any printed circuit boards from the potential for people inserting malware or whatever uh, in production. But there, to me, what I'm seeing in the conversation is equally a desire to bring that stuff on shore right, to yeah. have manufacturing here, yes, that's the area where we have the most likelihood of ensuring uh, security and integrity, but people also want the jobs. They want to see this, this work come back, um, and that's becoming also sort of a subtext, I think, of a lot of the, I, I see the same thing in the PPE conversations as well. So do you see, you know, a form of, a more explicit form, I guess, of industrial policy? Yes. Coming in the, in the future? Well, I'll give you an example. Another provision in the authorization bill, uh, there's a language in the House Section 825, which essentially raises the uh, Buy American percentage content for major defense acquisition programs to 75%. And there's a glide path to get to 100%. Now, those things have been added for years. Every year, somebody would stand up on the floor and add one of those things uh, to the bill. And it would get dropped in conference. There would be some discussion and some report language about it. But now you've had the administration coming out with their executive order, which raises the percentage from, in general, from 50 to 55%. And I, this particular provision, unlike many years in the past, I think, you know, it's going to be discussed seriously. And I, you know, I'm not sure how it gets resolved. Adjust the percentages or lengthen the time or something. Well, the problem with the Buy American Act is that there are a number of exceptions to it. And they are very complex. And if you, for example, look at the Federal Acquisition Regulation and the Defense Supplement, they're kind of in different spots. There's a piece here and a piece there. There's some specifically in the Buy American Act section, but there's also, you know, issues on free trade agreements and yes. uh, WTO. Right. And sort of how you define what is compliant, what isn't compliant. It's actually very, very complex. So, I, you know, that, that one in particular, I think, is going to be uh, potentially very difficult just because people aren't going to understand if they back off from this, what are they giving up? And if they don't, what are we going to run into in terms of disruptions in supply chains for major systems? Uh, so I think that one's going to be a little bit of a struggle. But just the fact that it's even being discussed in a serious way this year as, uh, you know, there was as an you've article, ever seen, huh? Yeah, there was an article uh, in Defense News this week by the proponents of this where they sort of laid it out. And it, it's really something where we're stepping up the conversation. So I think all of these things are sort of 
coming together uh, is sort of, you know, the cyber concern, the issue on jobs, the issue on just dependence uh, in, in the event of a crisis. And again, I think this is bipartisan, bicameral. Uh, I think whatever happens in the election, I think this is going to be a continuing conversation as we go forward. So, uh, and then you throw the commercial item piece into this and you say, well, you've got the supply chain, which may be global. Uh, to what extent do you exempt commercial items from any of this? And right. which category of commercial items? Do you limit it to commercially available off the shelf kinds of things that you buy, you know, anybody buys at the, at the retail places? Or is it something, you know, that, that some of these broader areas where you, you are using commercial, basically manufacturing lines, uh, and you're using the same organizations, but you may have things that are adapted for government purpose. You know, where do you draw the line, you know, with that sort of thing? And I think right. I think we're still the other issue I think that's also problematic with the cyber piece of it uh, is the fact that we it, it's been legislated so much and the legislation has not really been coordinated at all. Right. So we have Section 889, which deals with certain types of, of equipment and, and services. You have Section 1655, which is yet to be implemented, which deals with source code agreements, right, yeah. and sharing and all that, which is a whole separate issue. That's got its own regime and maybe involve eventually, who knows, it'll involve perhaps different countries. Um, and then we've got CMMC and we've got, you know, the NIST things which are related. I think at some point, relatively soon in the future, somebody's going to have to rationalize all this and coordinate it. Uh, because it's coming from too many different areas in, in isolation. Um, I create a comprehensive or holistic approach. Right. To, right. right. You know, John, when we're up on the break, um, when we come back, I, I want to, you know, just continue this conversation about industrial policy and just, you know, I want to get your thoughts or observations, you know, about the Defense Production Act. Right. Perhaps. And, you know, lessons learned from our current experience, what do you see, you know, in the future? potential changes to that law or, you know, you know, and it's already, it's actively being used to, you know, invest in domestic production for certain things, whether it's PPE or uh, swabs, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and just where you see, if you see that as a tool in the toolbox, you know, in this area. My guest today is John Etherton, president of Etherton Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jonathan Etherton. He is the president of Etherton Associates, and we've been talking about you know procurement policy, what's you know, what's going on on the Hill, the NDA, and that sort of thing. And the tension last segment, we were talked a lot about the tension, the push-pull between commercial item contracting and government sort of unique requirements, the age-old thing, you know, that goes back and forth over decades. But one of the things I wanted to talk to you about this session, because we sort of finished up talking about, you know, the you know, domestic production and, you know, where things are going in the Buy American Act. And I just, the Defense Production Act has been talked about more this year, I think, you know, with the pandemic than I can ever recall in my career, you know, and it's, and it's been utilized across the board for different things in response to the pandemic. Is it part and parcel of a future industrial policy? Is the utility of it? Do you have thoughts about its current structure and what we should be thinking about it when we when we look at it? 
Well, I think a couple things to recognize about it. Um, one of them is that within the Defense Production Act, there are a number of very significant tools that the government can have uh, that they can use uh, from putting priorities uh, and allocation, you know, on different things that they've designated as vital for national security to the uh, ability to do capital infusion into companies. Um, we have a beryllium capability now to make beryllium parts because the Defense Production Act, they actually use it to buy equity in a company to keep the company from going under and, and kept the domestic uh, production of that. So, um, and there are a number of other projects you can do for our development of different um, um, sources and technologies and things like that. So it's, a, it's an incredible tool. There are a couple of issues with it though. Number one, on the Hill, uh, the jurisdiction for the uh, Defense Production Act, surprisingly, is not these armed services committees. It is the banking committee uh, in the House, and I think it's financial services in the, uh, in the, or in the House's financial services in the Senate. It's the banking committee, and that's an artifact of the original passage in 1950 uh, during the Korean War when this whole thing got started. And I can tell you, having been on the Armed Services Committee in the Senate, on the staff, and having had discussions with the Banking Committee, they are loath to cede one iota of jurisdiction <laughs> over that, that bill uh, to the uh, Armed Services Committee. So I think it really complicates the prospects for changes to the Act. Um, what's interesting to me is what uh, the administration has, has chosen to do and what they've not chosen to do with it. Um, but I think it gives the government enormous power uh, in a national emergency to do, you know, any number of things. I'm not sure that it needs to be expanded. Um, if there are probably some modern, I, if you look at the wording, it's a little archaic in it. But, I, you know, I think it's, it's it can be a very effective tool. But what it does also show, I think, in our use of it is there are certain things in an emergency that you can throw all the money you want at it. And it's not going to change anything. I mean, there's just a... There's a time issue yeah, that right. you just have to you have to take into consideration with it, and and so, yeah, I mean, I think we're going to be spending more time. I think this uh, the COVID experience is going to drag on, unfortunately. I think for well into next year, and I think we're going to be you know continuing to resort to it over and over again. But the oversight of it and how it works again from a congressional perspective, if somebody were to come back and say you know, we've had this experience now with it and we want to use it. Um, here are some things we learned and we want to change. It'll be a little complicated because of these jurisdictional issues. I think the other thing that people uh, probably don't understand in the use of it is I think there's a great overestimation of the economic power of the government, especially the Department of Defense, especially if you're talking about creating long-term production capacity or manufacturing in the United States. Um, the demand from the government now that you know it varies by commodity, but the demand for government often is is so small, and the investment requirements are so great that that's they just don't have enough leverage and they can't drive the market right. So right. You, you can use all these tools you want. Uh, there, for example, there's been a lot of discussion about rare earth uh, elements and you know what can we do. To, you know, we've got some basis to create a domestic capacity. Um, the applications in the Defense Department, though, are very specific. Um, we have environmental issues we have to deal with. Um, you have, uh, and you have just a, the basic demand 
uh, Department of Defense demand just isn't enough, right? To I think to create uh, some of the things that people are looking for with this. Um, and and so, you know, when people talk about it, I think it's great we do, you know, we look at all the different things, but uh, it seems like if you look at the supply chain for some of these things, at some point the stuff's going to Asia and then it's coming back, you know, as they, in some point of the processing and whatever. And, and it, it, I guess this week they were talking about with the executive order uh, using authority to stockpile some of this stuff. And I think it's, they can do that. But again, understanding what your applications are because they are so specific and the requirements are so stringent that you could be stockpiling something that isn't worth anything, uh, you know, you, or you don't know, you know, what your needs might be three or four years down the road. And so I think we have these tools, but I think that the, one of the issues that we have to recognize, DOD just doesn't have that much leverage in some of these markets. To th- they can throw everything they want at it. It's just not enough to move investment, you know, so. So, so John, in that, from that perspective, and I don't know what's the, you know, how much is enough, but it seems to me that the challenge over the next few years is, it's not just on the demand side, the buy side, but you know, if you're really serious about changing supply chain uh, behaviors, I guess, you're gonna have to do something. It's gonna be a holistic approach. You've got to deal with infrastructure costs or you know, costs of actually manufacturing in certain places. Um, and I think of like, you know, active pharmaceutical ingredients, right? That, you know, are now, you know, made in China and it's, it's driven by cost really. Cause it's, you know, it's often it's the generic mark, you know, it's the generic market. That's, that's a cost driven market and how you adjust that to change the supply chain. It's got to, you know, the demand that the federal government has for those things is not enough to drive behaviors. Right. Well, I think one of the tools that we haven't done much of recently uh, was kind of a popular thing in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, were these sort of government industry consortia idea, where you get the folks in the industry together who have, and again, you have to be really focused. You have to, number one, have an industry here to do this. And the second thing is to be really focused on what your specific objectives are. But in cases where you can, where the government can leverage private sector investment, as opposed to try to drive it Mm-hmm. you know, through spending or through using some of these other authorities that I, I don't know that we're exploring that. Um, I think of Semitech as the one with the semiconductor industry. Uh, we had another or a smaller one with the machine tool uh, manufacturers. Uh, and again, you, where the, where the private sector really is in the driver's seat and they're really, right. they, you know, you get some people and they've got some skin in the game, right? It's not just government sort of handing people money. Um, then you can really see what the art of the possible is in some of these areas. And I, we haven't really explored that much of uh, that kind of an approach for uh, several decades. Yeah. Uh, all right. And John, you know what, we can stop right there and take a break. And when we come back, we'll, you know, we're talking some of, of the, about the future. And I guess we'll take a look forward as to what you see, you know, in the next year or two with regard to acquisition policy and then just government in general. Uh, my guest today is John Etherton. He's the president of Etherton Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is John Etherton, president of Etherton Associates. And John, um, I think this segment, um, we have looked, you know, 
towards the future and the shorter term. I guess this segment, let's just talk sort of big picture where you see things headed, um, you know, from the from a just governmental operational perspective and a policy perspective over the next two to three years or so. So Sure. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I can go two or three years, but I'll give you sort of what I think of the near-term things. Okay. I, I, one of the things that I think is notable is that uh, with the administration, and again, I'm looking at this more from a defense perspective, they have a number, number of elements that I consider to be sort of the new look uh, approach where uh, as a result of Secretary Mattis and the national defense strategy and the imperatives that we're seeing uh, with uh, the you know China emerging as a near peer competitor and potential adversary and, and just technology changes and uh, artificial intelligence uh, competition and all that sort of thing. You're seeing a cluster of different initiatives that are emerging, uh, and, and I think it's not only in defense, I think it's in the other federal agencies as well. And some of these look to be things that you say, well, they're more associated with this administration, but I, I really think there's gonna be a lot of continuity, no matter what happens in the election, uh, with what we've seen in the last couple of years. I think the issues that I mentioned earlier on the authorization bill are gonna be the issues next year. I just really think we're gonna see, see a lot of those things. You know, looking forward, just in terms of the next few months, uh, I think the question will be, uh, first of all, obviously, what happens in the election, I think, and how do people react to it? I think another issue will be whether Congress, as a result of what happens in the election, whether they decide to finish the FY21 appropriations bill in December around the time the continuing resolution wraps up, or whether a decision is made uh, to carry it over into next year, as was done in 2017. I have pretty strong feelings that the latter would be a really big mistake, uh, but I'm not at the table having any well in that. But I think that uh, if if things are finished up in December, then that leaves a cl relatively clean slate for at least the legislative process to take place next year. And then I do think, uh, and, and even if we don't have a new president after November, um, there are going to be a number of significant transition issues that we're going to see uh, in the House and Senate with retirements and, you know, shifting around uh, leadership in various committees. Um, and even in the, in the administration with, uh, you know, expected changes in leadership at the top in the various cabinet agencies that I think we'll, we'll, we're going to be in a significant transition period either way. So my basic point, uh, longer versus shorter. So I think I think I think those things, I, the issues that I think are going to be interesting, I'm hearing a lot more discussion along the lines of as we look at this new look approach to capability acquisition, which really we're getting away from systems bought whole to platforms that we can plug and play and move different capabilities in and out of um, and, and be more agile with that. Um, if you look at the DOD, their new 5000 series approach, which they want to do different pathways and have abilities to do things, especially up front, more agilely. What is what is starting to dawn on people, and, and more recently, many people have been talking about it, is the way we do the money. And how does that really affect um, what we buy, what we can't buy, how we buy it, how agile we can be. Um, and I think that's going to be more a part of the conversation next year. I think that uh, we're starting to run up against the, if you don't have your thing ready to go, 
every year in December with a defined requirement, you miss the POM. I mean, basically you're out for two years, you know, to, and then you yeah. have to wait another year to get to, to figure out how to get it back in cycle. And that these very hard milestones, I think over time, I think our, our, our people are going to see more and more what a problem that is. And when you go about talking about that, you're talking about OMB, you're talking about the uh, Budget and Empowerment Act, you're talking about the Appropriations Committees, you know, very powerful stakeholders who have gotten very used to doing things, you know, a certain way in a system that's largely been disconnected from discussions around reform of the management of different things. And I think we're going to see, I expect, in the next year to two years, much more discussion about that. Yeah. And even if nothing actually changes much, I think it, at least it's going to be a discussion about let's at least understand how this works and what impact this has on behavior and what it basically allows and doesn't allow at the boundaries, right? Um, I'm going to be very interested, for example, to see with the Air Force, with this next generation uh, aircraft program that they've got and that they apparently have tested a prototype and it's really worked amazingly well. We don't know anything really about the details of that. But all of that great work we've done up on the upfront side of the cycle to speed it up, to find out, test things out quickly, not commit to technologies that make or break big programs, that sort of thing, has worked pretty well. I guess, or potentially, I think the real question is, when you start running up against these requirements on how you get things inserted, the certification and the reporting requirements, that to the start of a serious multi-year program and, and the timelines and the milestones that you have to meet for that, I think there's going to be a train wreck. I, I, you know, I wonder, I guess, uh, I think you can overcome a lot of it with extremely high level uh, focus and interest, but if you lose that, people are left to fend for themselves. And, and in the, under the new 5,000, it's mainly the program manager who's responsible for all these things. Then I think we're going to see the real disconnects and the concern that I have is great work up front. What does the warfighter get at the end of it in terms of a capability sure. in hand, right? And I think we're going to see the same thing with the medical equipment and some of these other things is as we try to work the system and make it more agile and, and change the fundamental nature of the way we're working with suppliers, to what extent does the budgeting and, and the resource allocation process preclude certain things and enable certain things and that we're not, I don't think people are really thinking about that much. So I think that's going to be a big discussion point uh, going forward. So uh, those are some of the things that I see as real. As, as yeah, it seems to me, well, if you, if you try to create greater flexibility to execute, you know, the money's got to be able, the money follows that, right? Or is, you know, is the basis of that, right? So, right. you know, providing the flexibilities there, you can still have accountability, you know, for what, what you're doing, what you're spending on, uh, greater flexibility on being able to make the, the appropriate investment at the time that it's most, you know, effective um, is something that the government in many cases, can, as you described, can't do, right? Or just right. it's a system that's built on truly about fiscal accountability and who controls the purse and you know, anti-deficiency act and annual funds and color of money. Um, color of money. Yeah, I was going there next. Um, and yeah. Just yeah. all those things are all about control and you know accountability and tracking it. And I guess you, in a certain sense, you got to let some of that go, but figure out how to a way to understand you know what's happening with it at the same time. I guess is that does that make right. sense? No, yeah. I think it's right. And I also think the other issue you have is the history of attempts 
in the past uh, that people to render more flexibility into the system and the abuses that have come with that, that all that history gets dragged into the conversation. You know, yeah. I remember back in 1723, you know, and right, right, exactly. And, and so, <laughs> but I think there's some hope and I, you know, what's interesting to me in this cycle uh, is on the software thing that I talked about earlier. One of the most interesting uh, outcomes so far that I've seen in the legislative process, the department of defense proposed uh, software color of money, essentially, as part yeah. of their budget proposal in the RDTNA, they put it there, but essentially it's colored money, free color money kind of thing. And in the midst of this big political knockdown, drag out political fight about money for the wall and reprogramming and the court cases and all that, that you would have thought this thing would have just gone up in smoke. And in fact, the House Appropriations Committee included this uh, this authority or this appropriation in their bill. We haven't seen the Senate yet. Yeah. But but in the midst of all this, <laughs> there, there there emerged this consensus that hey, this was an appropriate thing to do. It had been studied a lot with the Defense Innovation Board study last year. And so um that gives me hope, you know, that right. we can have these conversations. Uh, these are obviously pilot programs. It's a fairly low voltage kind mm. of thing that you can keep control over it. But but I think the fact that you know there's a model maybe that is it shows a way forward. For yeah. discussions in some of these other areas, but I mean, just the way we do the the, the budget accounts and the way money, even in RDTNE, flows from six one to six four, and how that then gets made it up with with technology and the synchronization that you have to have, even within those accounts for these programs and these platforms. Uh, we're talking modular open systems architecture. We're talking yeah. about all these other things. Some of that can really break down unless you have a good understanding. And a, and a real mastery of the of the budgeting process, so, right? And this, and this is to me part and parcel of just IT modernization as well, right? It, right. Yeah. So, well, and, it bi- the system is biased right now for legacy because right. you get all this O and M money, right? So it's yeah, and you it's, know, yeah, you can spend that, right? Yeah, Maintain yeah. what you have, but you can't right. get the investments you need. So, well, John, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, and you know what? After the election, I'll have you back on, and we can talk about where things stand now at that point. Okay. Okay. Sounds like a plan. I'll be happy to come back. All right. Again, I want to thank my guest today, John Etherton, president of Etherton and Associates. And I'm Roger Waldron. You've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.